Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always, in this case literally with me in person, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Jeff, we're thousands of miles closer than we normally are. It is magical, and it took us considerably longer than usual to get down to business and actually start recording. I think that's not a coincidence. So hopefully this will lead to a episode unmatched by anything that has come before. Um, otherwise, eh, still, it'll be like a regular Tennis Abstract podcast episode. If you're listening, then probably means you think that's a good idea. And you're going to get your money's worth. You'll definitely get your money's worth. I have to, to make one one plug before we get started, and that's to Jerry Marzorati, the New York Times tennis writer, whose, whose book, Late to the Ball, is serving as a platform for a microphone. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if, if Jerry would be happy that his book is being used and not read, but, but we're, we're reading it at other times. Right, Carl? You, I, I've read it. It's, it's a fun book, and uh, I've played Jerry and seen the fruits of his, his learning, and... I think about him every time I record a podcast because it moves up the, um, the microphone quite a bit. And it's, it's a beautiful book to look at. Nice green cover. All right. And he was a guest on your podcast once, right? That's right. On 30 Love, the only tennis podcast that's better than this one. Wow. Strong words. We were talking before recording about the, the chance that Carl might need to be replaced as a co-host. And uh, the needle has moved a little further in that direction with comments like that. So let's start by talking about the biggest story in tennis this week, which is kind of shocking during a combined Masters premiere event, but it is not the tennis itself. It is the vote to reform Davis Cup. We've been talking about this for pretty much the whole calendar year of 2018. There's the consortium led by the soccer player whose name I don't know or care to inject $3 billion or something into the ITF and totally change the Davis Cup into something that is less like Davis Cup and more like the World Cup. We're not using the word the words World Cup anymore because that might remind people that we're throwing away tennis and, and changing it to more of a soccer football format. Um, but it has been approved. 71% of the votes at the ITF general meeting went in that direction. So. Davis Cup is basically gone as we know it. We have a different event now that will come at the end of the year. Apparently 18 countries are going to have a, a big showdown at some neutral venue that will coincidentally, I'm sure, be in Spain or France, two countries that voted for the proposal. So, Carl, I think I've already kind of given away some of my position on this <laughs> from the way I've phrased my intro. Um, what do you what do you think about the new Davis Cup? Is this is this a disaster? Is this something that needed to happen? Is it something you're looking forward to? What what do you think? I'm looking forward to it. I don't think it's a disaster. I definitely don't think it needed to happen. You know, I was just at the International Tennis Hall of Fame about a month ago, a month and a half ago, and there was an exhibit on the history of Davis Cup, and it reminded me of just how much of a lark the whole thing was when it started and how completely different it was for decades than what it is now. So I think that gave me a little more comfort of a reminder of the thing that we love now is not what it always has been and that sometimes things change. And in this case, yeah, I'm with you. I don't think it had to change. But I also think that generally after something changes, 
we eventually grow familiar with it and then eventually we grow to really like it and appreciate it and not want it to change again. So I don't know if the exact format that they've adopted is going to be the one, the next one that we become attached to, but I think given time we can come to enjoy what this is, even if it feels wrong to call it Davis Cup. Well, I, if it does turn out that we grow to enjoy it, then there could be some great news, Carl, that the ITF as part of this plan is using some of the money for two other team events that I don't think any information has really come out about those. I think it's just some quotes from the ITF head, David Haggerty, that there's he's thinking about two other things, then we'll find out more in due time. Um, and then so there's there's a potential team event in I don't know April or something. There's a potential team event in September. There's there's Labor Cup, which I guess we'll find out in September if that's something that's going to to really have legs beyond the the inaugural event. And there is the ATP's plan to bring back the World Team Cup as part of their joint venture. I think with Tennis Australia. So we I think we'd lose the Hotman Cup but gain the ATP World Team Cup thing in Australia. So if all of these things happen, which I realize is a big if, we could have a lot of team tennis events and all of them will be competing for the same energy and attention from fans and from top players. What do you think about that, Carl? I mean, for the most part, Davis Cup is the, the before Labor Cup, it's the only team event in the game, really, besides, besides Hopman. Um, and Fed Cup. And Fed Cup, sorry. When, yeah, when I when I build my database, I, I use the same codes for Davis Cup and Fed Cup, so I think of them as the same unit, uh, which isn't really true anymore since Davis Cup is being reformed and Fed Cup reform is is I think on the table but not not officially planned at this stage. So they are becoming different events at least temporarily. So, but the point being that team tennis is or international team competitions. Are, are not a huge part of the tennis calendar, but it's looking like that could change like, you know, over just two or three years. Do you think that's a positive for the sport? I do. I think listeners of the show know that I like team tennis probably more than they do on average. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just in Orange County and went to a world team tennis event, the Orange County Breakers against the Washington Castles. And it reminded me that this team, these team tennis innovations and then adding in some really supposed to be fan-friendly touches like the colorful courts and the different scoring system and the music that World Team Tennis does, that that's all growing out of something invented decades ago that used to be a much bigger part of the tennis calendar. So I think it's a real vindication of Billie Jean King's vision that tennis is embracing the idea. One of the things that I think fans really connect with with team tennis is the evident enjoyment that players take out of it. They have a chance to actually have people on their side cheering for them or to cheer for and to, to huddle with and strategize with. And I think we all appreciate the nature of the typical singles tennis match and players being on their own and having to figure things out on their own. But I think that makes it all the better to occasionally inject in the calendar a different format. And I really like the formats that mix genders. I think tennis is, is at its best when the men and women are at the same event. And when they're on the same team playing against other teams, that's all the better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth in that. There's, there, 
there's a lot of entertainment value being left on the table by how little mixed gender tennis there is. And, and you're right. I think players and fans both tend to enjoy team tennis formats. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about with the Davis Cup reforms is in, in the, the news articles I've, I've read about that, in the, the ITF voting, the smaller countries or the smaller tennis federations almost unanimously voted in favor of the reform. And a, a big reason they did that is part of this huge like, financial infusion is some money that's going to go straight to those federations. So I think the New York Times report quoted uh, the, the head of the Ugandan Federation and got to imagine this is one of the first times that anyone did anything good for the Ugandan Tennis Federation. I mean, outside of Uganda, I'm sure there's useful things happening there from, from the inside. But the ITF isn't, isn't giving a lot of attention to you know, the, the Peruvian Federation or the, or the Ugandan Tennis Federation and so on. And this is, this is an example of when that, that's really happening. On the other hand, I mean, the, the, the cash is great, and if you're leading a federation, it's going to be hard to vote no on some, some free money. But what I worry about with reforms like this and this potential spread of team events is, is that it, it really lessens the chance for high-profile or moderately high-profile events in smaller countries. Because with by moving most of Davis Cup to one event at the end of the year, you throw away a lot of the home and away ties. So maybe maybe that isn't going to do anything good or bad for Uganda, but it is for a country like Croatia that might have a 250 or a WTA 125 event. But for the most part, the biggest tennis event you're going to see in Croatia, or maybe Serbia is a better example since Serbia has some pretty big tennis stars, is... A Davis Cup home and away tie, and when that happens, Carl, I know you went to the a Davis Cup tie in Serbia once, so you can speak to this. It is a huge event, and the best that Serbia is otherwise going to do is an ATP 250 for a few years. And now even the Davis Cup home and away is being taken away from them. And with the the possibility of these additional team events, that's more weeks on the calendar that probably squeezes some of the smaller tour events. And even the chance to build a 250, maybe turn it into a 500 or a WTA Premier, even that seems like it's a little further away to me. So what do you think, Carl? How do you think this shakes out for the smaller countries? Is this, is this really going to work in their benefit, just taking some cash in exchange for some opportunities at tennis's bigger stages? Yeah, that to me is the biggest loss here by far. I really enjoyed attending the 2013 Davis Cup final in Belgrade, and, and it was a big event. But I think Serbia has had quite a few ties since then, including home ties without Novak Djokovic. And the while it's it's sort of like winning the lottery to get a home tie and get some great home or visiting players participating, those lottery tickets are getting longer odds all the time. You know, you could have a Serbia-Spain tie on paper, and then if Nadal and Djokovic don't show up, it's it's not actually that great. It's also not something you can plan for. Like, especially in the later rounds, you might only get a few months' notice to know that your country has the tie, and maybe only a month or two to know where the tie is going to be. So I don't know if it's practical, but I think if the countries really wanted 
to guarantee you know a big tennis event they could schedule a year in advance a big exhibition raise the money and actually get top players to sign on davis cup really wasn't promising anything specific to these countries so maybe in a few years they would actually get a blockbuster tie and maybe more than one in a season if they went deep in the competition but it it's just not a sure thing that's true and this brings us back to something that I think we talked about in a, a previous episode when these reforms were first floated, but we can recap this now that we know more, is that that is a, one of the big factors in the reforms, that people are always talking about how how many ties, or how few, rather, how few ties that the top players are playing. I don't think that's entirely a fair criticism, but your point holds, Carl, that there have been some potential blockbuster ties where the the big-name players on both sides don't show up. I think that does a disservice to guys like like the Big Four who have played a lot of Davis Cup over the years, but if they're playing less than 100%, then it looks like they're not playing enough. And that's one of the things that these reforms are, are set out to fix. But the question remains, and we won't find out for a while now, is now that we have a different format at the end of the year, it's just this one-week commitment, is everyone going to play now? I mean... It, at the mo- at the moment, tempers are a little high, I think. But so I'm not sure if we can believe what everyone's saying to the press right now. But Alexander Zverev has said he's not going to play Davis Cup in the new format. And I mean, if if there's one player you care about going forward, it's probably him. Once the big four retires, he he could be the guy for a long time. And if you don't have him, then I mean, it, it would be like missing Federer for ten years of Davis Cup. Luca Pui said the same thing. He's another guy who could be a, a factor for the next half decade or so. Because France is always going to be in the mix in events like this. So I, I, I feel like it's people might be too optimistic that we're going to suddenly have have all the top players showing up and all these high profile matchups. What do you think, Carl? I mean, this is if I understand the scheduling right. This is supposed to be after the World Tour Finals in November? I'm, I might be wrong about that, but do you think that we're going to get a lot better turnout of the top players for this event than we've seen from Davis Cup in the past? Well, first of all, I think it matters a lot less in this format. I think that's one of the virtues of the format. If you have one missing player that could totally, in the old format, detract from a Davis Cup Final. It could make it just a, a clear route without any high-profile matchups. Whereas in this format, if one country doesn't have its star, then presumably that country loses early. And when I think about the Soccer World Cup, and I know we're not supposed to uh, mention that again, this is a tennis podcast, but when a player is missing from a country, it's lamented, it detracts from the competition, but then that country loses, and we get excited about the underdogs that advance, and... I think there's just a lot of validation for the idea that this this format, which exists in so many other sports, is more immune to players being missing. The other thing that comes to mind is that we shouldn't take completely for granted that what a player says now is going to hold. So much can happen in between. The third thing I'm I'm really pleading ignorance on, do you know the relative financial incentives now versus before? I think now it entirely comes down to what the individual federations do. I don't think there's any money in Davis Cup 
per se. I think that most federations compensate their players in some way or other, and I think in some cases that's tied to results, but it normally comes out when the, the incentives are not good enough, like Kevin Anderson in South African Davis Cup, because I think that they didn't offer him any money or barely travel expenses or something, so he didn't play Davis Cup for a while for South Africa. Um, beyond that, I, I don't know what would be involved now, uh, and another question related to that is if there if if there will be um, ATP ranking points on the table, and I I saw some jokes on Twitter about how we have these new Davis Cup uh, possible other team events coming online next year, and we have the ITF switching a lot of their lower level events to the I think it's called the transition tour, so there will be separate transition tour <laughs> rankings from the ATP rankings. And maybe if the ATP and ITF are at loggerheads about these competing team events, there could be separate ITF country. Or, I mean, they're already Davis Cup rankings uh, for countries. There could be something like that. So we could potentially have three separate ranking systems, which I guess for someone like me, I should be comfortable with that since I'm making up ranking systems all the time. But it would be weird to have... Uh, the, different competing ranking systems that are that all have some degree of officiality. So I, I don't know. I, I, th- I think that might be the more pertinent question, actually, than, than finances, because for the players we really care about showing up at these events, I think they care more about ranking points than about prize money. And Alexander Zverev, I, I've, I've read, is, is, will make pretty serious demands for um, appearance fees for tournaments below the Masters. But... Ultimately, if you're looking for something to guarantee that these guys will show up, it's ranking points. I mean, they're making plenty of money if we're talking about the top 20 or 30. Um, but that might be something that still hasn't been worked out. Well, we say now it's ranking points. And again, I think if we take the long view, it's it's possible that the first two years, a lot of players don't show up. And then eventually they see it on TV, they hear about it, they want to... They want to join the event. I, I'm thinking here about the Olympics, which took away ranking points, and I didn't see any significant effect on on turnout. Zika had an effect on turnout, <laughs> but uh, you know th- there were great players playing big matches late in that Olympic tournament because it's the Olympics, and you say, well, that's the Olympics, and I think something has to start somewhere for it to eventually have that kind of pull and Davis Cup isn't starting from nowhere because it's still called Davis Cup it's still tied to ITF have you followed the World Baseball Classic much in the last couple editions yeah that's an interesting counter example right well yes and I'm partly asking because I really don't know when it it's an maybe an interesting uh, parallel but opposite in a way because for me personally because when the World Baseball Classic first came online maybe that was 2007 I think uh, I thought it was it sounded like the coolest thing ever, and I I made a trip to San Diego to watch one of the pool rounds and saw Team Korea because I think team, the Koreans won that year, and I saw I saw our oldest Chapman when he was pitching for Cuba, and yeah, it, I thought it was going to be one of the coolest things ever. It was one of the coolest things ever, and then I stopped caring about baseball very much, so I haven't really paid too much attention, but there are a lot of similarities in what you just said to when the World Baseball Classic was first devised because it sounded a little crazy and weird and off point and a big concern was 
you, you need to have a lot of players show up for this in the middle of spring training, which seems like a weird time to have a big international baseball thing. But if you were going to have something World Cup-esque in baseball, that's kind of what you had to do. One difference between the World Baseball Classic and the new Davis Cup is the baseball thing is only every four years, like the World Cup. But um, but are they still struggling getting getting players to participate in the World Baseball Classic? Blind leading the blind here. Okay, so we don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that it also. My understanding from the last times I paid attention is that it varies tremendously by country, and partly that's because different countries have different baseball schedules. So for yeah. Major League Baseball, like you pointed out, it was pretty problematic. Yeah, even though they are the sponsoring organization of the whole thing, so they should be able to sort that out. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, but you're right, Carl. I think we, there could be a transition period where players are protesting or think they're too tired to play a year-end event or whatever. Um, and then it could grow into something bigger that players want to make the effort to participate in. I think it also could end up hinging on what happens with the January schedule. And that's in flux now with what Tennis Australia and the ATP are talking about because the the Davis Cup, if we are putting a big year-end event in the middle of November, that does cut into the off-season for a lot of players. But if if everybody isn't showing up on December 30th to play their first-round matches in Brisbane or Abu Dhabi or whatever, then maybe there's more flexibility. Maybe the season doesn't really start until 10 days into the new year or 15 days into the new year. I, I don't really know what's on the table, and I'm not sure if that's... That might not be my lack of knowledge. It might be that this is a lot of stuff that no one's really figured out. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts in in this part of the tennis schedule, and, and it all could end up having an effect on each other. It might it might turn out that having two big events at the end and the beginning of the season could be good for both if it sort of forces everyone to have the same six to eight week off season. But that's that implies there's a lot of details known that aren't. Um, one last thing about the new Davis Cup, and this is probably something I should have let you think about before. This might be an unfair question to spring on you, but if everyone's playing and we have this event where there's a lot less a lot less rest, it's probably best of three. I'm assuming it's all best of three and not best of five. Maybe it's going to turn into fast four, one set of first to four, no add, um, first to 15 in every game. I don't know what rules they're going to have, but it's going to be shorter format matches. They're going to have to play with less rest. The, the, the title match is probably going to be people who've been playing a lot all week, especially people who play doubles. Um, who are the countries do you think that will benefit in terms of actually winning the Davis Cup with a totally new format? I think the U.S. maybe has a shot. Uh, I think they'll probably show up. They have pretty good turnout for Davis Cup now. Uh, they have a lot of guys who can play doubles. They miss the Bryan brothers, but uh, yeah, I feel like the format may suit them better. Well, you say we're, they'll miss the Bryan brothers, but Mike is not even really missing Bob that much right now. Yeah, he's playing pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure in his heart he's missing them. Uh, I don't know if they'll still if they'll participate or even still be near the top of the game, but. Just saw in Cincinnati the Federer-Vavrinka match and rem- remembered what a good pair those two are just on their own. 
it would be a lot to ask of them, but at least it wouldn't be best of five. And they show that they could basically, without any help, win Davis Cup in 2014. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it. I think it depends more on who turns out than on the change in the format. I think it's still the same basic powerhouses. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, it, it, you've always got to keep France in the conversation. They just have so much talent. But you're right to say with the with the shorter format, then it, it might open the door a little bit more to the just two player teams, like a, maybe not Federer or Vavrinka because they're probably not much of a doubles team at this point. Uh, I don't even know who the Swiss number three would be now. I feel like so many people have come and gone, and, and you might be better off with Belinda Bencic as your number three <laughs> than than anybody else, or Martina Hingis playing doubles. It's a solid option. So really, that's what the Davis Cup, that should become the mixed gender event. Um, but yeah, that, that, that'll be interesting to see, because you could end up with someone someone like Alejandro Zverev, actually, who could play a ton of tennis in a four-day run. He, he, he's a good enough doubles player that with a with a solid partner, he could end up like playing... Like his brother. Maybe. Like his brother, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking like a five-year time horizon, and a lot of the guys we're talking about will probably not be a factor by then, including Misha. But but yeah, actually, I think Misha's only 31, maybe. So in five years, he could be at his, his doubles prime, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, of course you're right. The, the turnout will be the key thing. It'll be just be interesting to see how it shakes out for, uh, for how much players are able to participate. And if we do, it might make it possible for there to be more of a Davis Cup powerhouse. Maybe not more than Spain was for a little while, uh, but, but maybe if the same good players are turning up every year and one of the current German prospects, like, I don't know, Rudolf, Rudolf Molika or something, turns out to be a star, then you could have a, a two-player juggernaut, like Shapovalov and Auger Aliassime. Oof, that would be a good one. Okay, so now that I've shown off that I can approximately pronounce Auger Aliassime, let's talk about actual tennis, now that we're halfway through this episode. So we, we're recording this on Sunday morning, which means that the Cincinnati finals have not yet happened. Those are two of the three important matches happening today. The third one, it depends on the weather here in New York because Carl and I are about to take the court for our first match in a year and a half. Wow. A long time. We're both well past our prime and aging rapidly. So lots of changes, I'm sure, that will be reflected in the final score. Um, We could talk a lot about that, but that might be less interesting to the listeners than talking about Djokovic and Halep. So the men's final, we have Djokovic and Federer, which is not something I expected to say for a little bit longer. But Djokovic has the chance to finish his set of Masters titles, which we haven't been talking much about Djokovic's greatness in the last year or so because he hasn't given us a lot of reasons to. But, wow. I mean, that's one of the biggest accomplishments in tennis. Do you think that Djokovic completing the Masters set we saw he just won Wimbledon is is he back to boosting his his greatest of all time arguments I mean do we have to start moving him back up again even though he was just out for a year yeah we have to start moving him up but we're moving him up from the position he's in watching Federer and Nadal move away from him at the top for the last year and a half or so but 
this accomplishment, I think, really speaks to his greatness in a unique way. Federer stymied by some of the clay masters, by Rafa, but sometimes by other players. Like he had, he had a Rome final against Djokovic. He had a Monte Carlo final against Wawrinka. Couldn't win those. I think Rafa, he lost in Rome to Felix Mantia. Early on, yeah. yeah. That's one of his first Masters finals, maybe his first. And Rafa often stymied by just a long schedule and, and skipping the end of the year or not near his best at the end of the year. But Djokovic, for, you know, since 2011, with, with some interruptions and some dips in form, has been so consistent through every surface, every part of the year. And that makes it more bizarre that he hasn't won Cincinnati than impressive that he's about to. Like, it's, it's only when Cincinnati rolls around that you remember, it's sort of like Nadal in Miami, that Djokovic has shown up over and over, made lots of finals. Five, I think. Yeah, and maybe three of them against Federer. And just hasn't quite been able to break through. And I think he's come pretty close in some of those finals. So, yeah, I think, I think he's this, probably the slight underdog, partly because he's played a bunch of three-set matches at this tournament, and Federer got a reprieve last night with Goffin retiring early in the second set. So maybe Federer will be fresher, plus this court, this surface, seems to agree with his game more. But either way, I think it's just a reminder of how incredibly successful Djokovic has been not just at the majors where he's won 13, but at this next tier of events that typically has a field at the top that's just almost as strong, if not just as strong. Yeah. Um, it, it, again, it's a little weird to talk about this when we haven't, well, the match hasn't happened, but listeners are all going to be hearing this probably after the match has happened. But last week we were talking about how Nadal, pretty much dominating his way through Toronto, put him at least in the conversation as a U.S. Open favorite, also as defending champion in, in New York. Um, Djokovic lost relatively early last week to Tsitsipas. Uh, Federer didn't play. But Federer and Djokovic would seem, at least at their best, they would seem to be more likely to, to win in New York than we might have thought about Nadal, at least before he won Toronto. Do you think that the winner today of Federer and Djokovic is your new U.S. Open favorite? I think whatever happens, there are three co-favorites. And I'm saying that partly to cover the fact that we're recording something before this big match. So the three co-favorites are Schwartzman. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. None of them are Schwartzman? Well, Schwartzman is just default favorite at every tournament. Okay. There we go. But I think we're talking about a different kind of favorite. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you know you, you've been a little more skeptical about Nadal, but the guy won the U.S. Open last year, and then he won Beijing afterwards. So it, it helped that he won Montreal, but to me, his 2018 has been one of just strength throughout the season, and that was even though he had to pull out of the Australian Open. He was pretty deep into the Australian Open when he did, and. He came very close to winning Wimbledon when we had kind of written him off on grass. So, or at least very close to making the final, that's for sure. And I would have favored him in the final. So, I... I would have favored Schwartzman in the final. <laughs> he would have somehow <laughs> broken through. Grass is really his strength. Yeah. 
Hey, he had not won. He he increased his grass court winning percentage by infinity at Wimbledon this year. I don't think there's any other players who did that. They're probably yeah, worse. they're probably worse. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, yes. none is as awesome as Diego Sebastian Schwartzman. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this is a virus that like infects something where it just keeps popping up when you don't expect it. Schwartzman has virus has a negative connotation. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. A um, lollipop. A lollipop. Yeah, yeah. So, which someone should tell Diego he's our podcast lollipop. I'm sure that will translate well. Yes. So yeah, I I think. They're, they're co-favorites because I think if Federer loses today, he's still been over the last year and a half probably the best player on hard courts. And Nadal is the defending champion who just won his last tournament on a Masters. And Djokovic just won the last slam and made the final in Cincy. So, yeah, I think I think it, it probably is the three of them. And then we'll watch for the draw. One thing Djokovic has run here cements is that he's going to be a top eight seed so at least they won't face each other before the quarterfinals but yeah if, if Federer gets Djokovic in his draw slated for the quarterfinals and Nadal gets Carreño Busta then you know advantage Nadal yeah um okay I don't want to jump too far ahead into U.S. Open preview stuff besides things that are relevant to Cincinnati but one player I want to talk about again was Stan Wawrinka. And last week, I, I, I think I mentioned it briefly, but it, it was tough to, to judge where he was at. I think he, had, he played a tough match against Nadal, so he'd shown that he was getting back there, but you can only read so much into a loss. It's still, still a loss. It was pretty early in Toronto. And again, like he, he, he's not in the final. He's not winning Cincinnati, but... He played a tight match against Federer, which is about as well as he's ever done in his career of playing Federer. On hard courts. On hard courts, yep. Um, he, he won a couple more matches. He got through it all without, I think, any injuries. I didn't. I, I, I watched the Fucevic match, so he seemed fine in that one, despite having to deal with some rain delays. I don't know whether he had any, any lingering health stuff in the other matches, but... But he's, he's relatively healthy. He's playing probably not near his peak, but well enough to win some matches, definitely. I know I'm, I'm going to bar you from saying it depends on the draw, but <laughs> what's, what's your expectation knowing... I mean, so he's going to go into New York unseated. Uh, so he's going to probably face a seed of some caliber in the second round, at least. But... It's a good shot. It's going to be somebody in the the back half of the seeds. So, so if gun to the head. No talk about draw allowed. What's your expectation for Favrinka in New York? On average, third round. And you think he'll just run into someone that's, I mean, someone who's too high seated, or you think his his too much variance in his day to day game right now? What what's going to stop him? Yeah, that's just accounting for the thing I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> uh, but I've been I've been impressed. I saw that Federer match in Cincinnati, and he, yeah, he was right there with Federer. It was a somewhat sloppy match, but it looked more vintage Vavrinka than I'd seen. But you know, he also beat Nishikori. He, he had a good run there. His ranking is so low that he needs a wild card into the U.S. Open. I was kind of hoping they'd make him play qualities. That would be fun, <laughs> but it's a little unfair to a you know champ from two years ago. 
I here's a question back to you. Who do you expect on average to go further in the draw? Assuming I'm right that Murray is still playing, which I think he is because he's been playing warm up events. Murray or Vavrinka? Vavrinka, definitely. I th- I think Murray still has. He, he's not over the. Is it the hip that he had the surgery on? And he's come back much more recently. It's just that Vavrinka only started winning recently. Right. Yes. And yeah, it seem it, it seems like Murray could. He'll also be unseated. He could draw Schwartzman <laughs> in the first round and lose that match. I, he could he could draw someone like Query, and I, I I'm not sure I would give him a one in three chance of beating Query in New York. Uh, just to come up with a random example, and I mean he he played that thrilling match against Marius Kopel in Washington, and I mean Marius, Marius Kopel, come yeah. on, and great for Andy Murray, great for tennis, great for the City Open, I mean great for Andy Murray that day, but not good for any uh, any chances there but that's a good question I mean I think before Vavrinka's run this week I would have put them closer to neck and neck but especially when we're talking best of five the the health recovery issues are a bigger factor and I don't I don't think Murray's there yet I wouldn't be shocked if he doesn't play at all uh, whereas I think third round for Vavrinka is yeah I, I would be hard-pressed to be more aggressive than that but I wouldn't be surprised to see him go further. Since we're talking about Vavrinka, this was not on our agenda for this episode, but uh, I meant to put it there. Last week, we talked a lot about Sloane Stevens, and we were talking about what makes Sloane Stevens so good. One of the things we talked about is how she's she's good at sort of rolling with the punches. I guess that's what the word counterpunching means, so we'll say she's a good counterpuncher. Doesn't hit hard all the time, but when she decides to go for a ground stroke, especially a forehand, it's just boom, it's over. And if we wanted to put that in analytic terms, we might say that her average winner speed is... There's a bigger difference between her average winner speed and her average ground stroke speed than most other players. And I don't know if that's true. I mean, we need to have Hawkeye data and don't have that. So just a guess. But if, if we want to sort of formalize the the idea I have that that's it that difference because a lot of players it's not a huge difference I mean they're, they're slugging it out from the baseline and sometimes they just slug it out in the right direction or they've opened up some space or whatever yeah often it's opened up some space yeah and I was trying to think of who the other players were who fit that mold like Sloan of having a big gap between average ground truck speed and average winter speed partly just to start thinking about whether that's a good thing or not I mean it, it, if there's a big difference then that does mean you're hitting winners hard, but it also means you're not hitting most of your ground strokes that hard. And one person that came to mind was Vavrinka, because when he unleashes a backhand, I mean, that's one of the great shots in tennis, period. And he does hit pretty hard most of the time, but it's a, it, it's a quantitatively and qualitatively different thing when he really goes for it. Um, I guess I, I have two things I wanted to ask you about, Carl. One is... Is that a good thing? I mean, just having a big gap between the, the, the average speed and the winner speed. And two, are there other players you can think of who fit that mold? Yeah, it's a tricky one. A lot of things come to mind. I mean, for one thing, with Vavrinka and with any of these average speed measurements, the slice is such a big factor. And Vavrinka does slice surprisingly often. I think we, we always think of his powerful backhands, but 
He slices most of his backhand returns. He slices often in points to change up or because slightly not in the position to, to really let loose on it. So I think that's a pretty big factor. And speaking of spin, I think what we're often talking about with this difference is the difference between topspin and flat. And the really hard, fast winners are hit flat typically because when players put all of their their force into the ball and don't try to come over it, that translates into, into speed. So I'm thinking of like, who are the players who really change it up the most? I mean, Rafa comes to mind in that he doesn't hit that many winners, but often when he does, he's flattening out a forehand that he would normally be hitting with the men's topspin. And he's putting just as much force into it both ways, but one time it's to, you know, send the ball through the court really quickly and one time it's to open up space to do it um, but yeah I'd have to think about that more I'm guessing it does not apply maybe in the other end of the scale to like Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova because they are hitting so aggressively even when they're not hitting winners yeah and the other names that came to mind for me were some of the uh, the, the big French names like Malfi's definitely big variety mm. in, in shot speed and Sanga actually does the same. I mean, Sanga profiles a lot like Vavrinka, I think. Um, Curious. Does yeah. that. I, I'm, I'm sort of just rallying with you and then suddenly I'm unleashing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, it also occurred to me that sometimes the difference, like you mentioned the difference is not just it, it is speed, but it's because of a spin choice. It's also a court position issue sometimes, and that, that might be most true with Rafa. Because if, if he's six feet behind the baseline, he's not going to go for a winner. It's just foolish no matter who you are, uh, unless you're maybe Vavrinka. But he's not going to do that. He's going to hit a more conservative shot. But then if he gets up to the baseline, then the exact same shot can turn into a winner, flattened out hit it a little harder and hit it in the same direction, but you get a better angle, you take a little time away from the opponent. So that's a factor as well. And I think that happens with Sloan, but there's not as much of a difference in Sloan's core position uh, than there are for some of the men we're talking about, which might be more of just a difference between the men and the women's games. I'm not sure. I think there's one more important factor that we didn't think about, although I accidentally touched on it when I mentioned slice. It came to mind when you were talking about Nadal in court position, a whole lot of Nadal's winners are drop shots these days. Hmm. He gets inside, makes the opponent think that a screaming uh, ground stroke is coming at them, and so they back up all the way, and then he hits a delicate drop shot. Nishikori does that really well, too. And, yeah, just figuring out how to uh, factor that out and maybe separate the... Uh, I mean, you see this sometimes on charts of speeds of winners distribution, and you see a whole lot at very high speeds, and then you see a, a spike at, at the low speeds, too. Yeah. Another player who deserves a place in this conversation is Monica Nicolescu. I think about that because I, I saw her play on Friday. I went up to the quali rounds in New Haven. She was playing Monica Puig, and she lost. I didn't see the whole thing. I think I saw about a set and a half, and we all know Nicolescu from her um, one-of-a-kind slice forehand, but... I think we forget how good her backhand is and how hard her backhand is. And that's part of the secret to her game. Part of it is that she's so unpredictable. But even if all she's doing is hitting the standard forehand slice and the standard 
drive backhand, that's a huge variety to deal with. And so you want to set from Puig, and I think that's entirely why. And Monica Puig didn't quite know what to do against that. Um, I think Nicolescu is not 100% healthy, and her serve has gone downhill somewhat. So Puig was just teeing off on her serve, so she ended up losing, I think, more because of that. But maybe that's the ultimate in in variety or speed differences is if if you're just hitting slice off one wing all the time and you're going for your shots a lot off the other wing. Now, are you driving at, though, going back to Sloan, the variety or also the unpredictability so that you don't know which one's coming at you? Because I think you could do a measurement of, like, given roughly the same position and the same stroke, the forehand, the, the, the range that's coming at you. If, if Nicholas, who's always hitting slice forehands and always hitting drive backhands, that's probably difficult, but you at least know, oh, she's about to hit a forehand, I know it's coming. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, and in, in fairness, Nicolescu is in no way predictable at any time, but I, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Um, I'm not sure I had one of those things particularly in mind, but I did just, I, I, I just realized since, as we're having these high-profile Halep-Stevens battles that I had one of their first meetings sitting on my hard drive. Uh, they played in the first round of the 2013 Australian Open, which I think was the year that Sloan really broke through and made the semis or whatever she did her, that year at the Australian Open. And she just destroyed Halep. Uh, I think it was one and one or something like that. And she was hitting through Halep in every direction, hitting a ton of winners. And she looked more like she was going to turn into Serena or Sharapova or a player like that. And that's not who she plays like now. I mean, she has the physical ability, I think. Um, she has the skills and for most of that. But that isn't the tactical approach she's chosen to take. And I wonder if what a difference between average ground stroke speed and winner speed is a proxy for is, I guess, a combination of what, what kind of power you have and the way you're choosing to play. Because there's a lot of players who can never hit the winners that Sloan hits. They're just not strong enough. But if you are like that, then maybe you have to hit harder all the time. I and mean, Sloan has chosen not to play like Sharapova and just either go defense or full-out offense. So that means she's a counterpuncher a lot of the time, but she's a counterpuncher with this amazing bonus skill that most counterpunchers do not have. And I'm not sure there are a lot of women who fit that mold. Most of the women who have that kind of power, like, I don't know, Sabalenka comes to mind since she just made the semis in Cincinnati. I mean, she's got huge power, maybe more than it, than than... Not Serena, but maybe more than Sharapova. But that's what she does. <laughs> she swings away. She's not reckless about it all the time, but I mean, she, there's not a lot of variance between her average speed and her winners. But that's not what we see with Sloan, and it's interesting that that's worked for at least a lot of the times on big stages for Sloan because it is an unusual overall tactical approach. So... We're like one-third of the way through our agenda. <laughs> We're 50 minutes in, so let's turn up the speed a little bit. I do want to talk about Simona Halep a little bit. She's You do? I do. She is in the final in Cincinnati. Like I said, just beat Sabalenka yesterday. Uh, she's had a pretty easy draw. Uh, she you said she got Sabalenka, who's dangerous but not a top player yet. She played Lesia Sorenko in the quarters. 
And now she gets Kiki Burton's, who's had a much tougher path to the, the final match. Um, that's an interesting case of, we were talking earlier about uh, with the men, some, some of how they, they are predictable or, or more even on different surfaces. And this feels like more like a clay court final, Halep and Burton's. <laughs> um, Burton's especially, we were, I remember we talked quite a bit earlier in the season about what made Burton such a good clay court player, what made her a clay court specialist. And I guess that's the podcaster's curse is you start talking about someone as a clay court specialist and they're in the Cincinnati final a few months later. Um, but what I want to talk about with Halep is she played Toronto. She plays since, I mean, she won Toronto or Montreal rather. Um, she is in the final in Cincinnati. She's had to play at least parts of two matches in the same day once at both tournaments because of rain. And she chose to enter New Haven, which her first match would be on Tuesday probably. And then she could potentially win that and play the U.S. Open. So that's a lot of matches. And New Haven isn't quite Cincinnati or Montreal, but I mean it's a, it's a lot of good players at that event. So she could end up with some tough matches. Do you think she should? Should she follow through on her commitments to New Haven and, and potentially play four, five busy weeks in a row? No. no. <laughs> I made the case last week that Tsitsipas should go straight to Cincinnati from the, Mon- the Toronto final, and he lost his first match to GoFan. And I was saying, you know, not a big deal if you lose your first match because there's still a week and a half to the U.S. Open. But Hallow... I mean, we're now talking. There's a week until the U.S. Open. Uh, I don't. I don't really see the benefit. I, I see that as her having entered because she didn't expect to play as many matches the two weeks before. I don't think anyone would resent her for opening up a spot for a lucky loser. Yeah, um, and one danger for Simona. If, I think there was one year that she lost or retired in her first match in New Haven. She made the same scheduling choice. Maybe she's collecting an appearance fee or something. I don't know. But her first match is against the winner of a match between two qualifiers. So she might end up winning that whether she tries to or not. <laughs> that, that, that's the danger unless you really commit to tanking. And I don't know if Simona has that in her to show up and, and lose a match to, I don't know, potentially a number 80 player in the world or something. So, so yeah, I, I also hope that she... Maybe makes a trip to New Haven to sign some autographs and make an appearance, but opens up the spot for a lucky loser. Unfortunately, since Nicolescu lost in the first round of qualifying, that can't be her. But surprisingly, maybe it's not surprising, it's surprising to me how good that draw is in New Haven. I guess I always think of the week before slams in terms of what the men's draws look like, which are not very good. I haven't looked at the Winston-Salem draw, but I don't think there's anybody in the top 15 in it, or definitely not top 10. But it's very different in New Haven. Um, I saw Carolina Pliskova practicing a couple days ago. I think Kvitova is going to be there. Uh, lots of really good players. It's an, an excellent tournament. Garcia, maybe? Yep, Garcia will be there. And even the qualifying. I mean, almost all of the qualifiers, with the exception of the wild cards, are top 100 players. Like I said, I watched Puig Nicolescu. Um, Belinda Bencic was playing. Uh, Petkovic. Like a lot, and this this was first round of qualifying. So, um, I'm su- I'm surprised I had never made the trip before in all the years of 
living in New York and being a two-hour train ride away. And you've never been there either, have you, Carl? I mean, I know you've been to New Haven, but... <laughs> I think when I was a student there that I went once. Okay. But that was a long time ago. That might have been when the Williams sisters were in their first year or years on tour. Okay. Yeah, it's if you are in the New York or maybe even Boston areas, and I've, I would highly recommend going to check that out. It was basically empty on the first day of qualifying it's one of those days when almost everybody has a badge on because of all the volunteers and food service people and people building up all the tents and sponsor stuff but lots of great tennis unfortunately they put Anna Bogdan and Victoria Kuzmova on a court I couldn't see which is infuriating I mean how do they not know what a draw <laughs> Bogdan Kuzmova is going to be in the first round of qualifying I With mean, so few people there to watch, they should have taken requests on court <laughs> That would be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's always interesting to me at, at places like that, that's a college tennis facility, how they generate enough match courts. Because match courts at a tour event need more space than a typical court because you have to give the, the line judges space to operate. And if you have a, a row of four courts, then you can't use all four of those courts. So what they had done is they had a lot of groups of three courts where the, the, the middle one was just turned into seating for the line judges. A couple of them had actual mini bleachers, like a couple rows of bleachers. Some of them just had a few chairs for the coaches or people who needed to be able to see the match. So I, I thought about trying to pretend I was Victoria Kuzmova's coach, but <laughs> couldn't really see how I'd pull that off. Uh, it's, it's really weird to sit on a little mini bleacher thing that's in the middle of a tennis court, watching another tennis court. But I'm, I'm always fascinated how they handle that. They did the same thing with the grandstand. They put up bigger bleachers on two courts on either side of one court. Uh, I guess you see that also at grass court tournaments where they just redraw the lines. Right. Because the, the grass is all basically the same. I think they do have that, that in Roehampton for the Wimbledon qualifying. And Newport always makes for some funny TV visuals. Oh, yeah. Did you go to that tournament? Is that why you were at the Hall of Fame? No, I was there a week or two before, unfortunately. I've never been to the tournament. So pre-qualies? Pre-qualies, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I never really think about that as a major tennis destination, but it does seem like a tournament everyone should go to once, if only for an excuse to go to the Hall of Fame. Like, the Baseball Hall of Fame is just such a mecca for fans that if, you, if you're not there by the time... Like, if your dad hasn't taken you by the time you're 14 or 15, then you're not really a baseball fan. <laughs> just the American way but I or your mom yeah I, I've been there a couple times there aren't a lot of moms <laughs> <laughs> I mean more power to those who go but that's not the demographic uh, but I don't hear people talking about the tennis hall of fame in the same way and did, was it I mean, was it interesting was it worth the trip yeah I think all hall of fames tend to just be memorabilia focused and that's not that good for, that's not as exciting for me and I found the kind of in, uh, informational material better done at the Wimbledon Museum, which I recommend everyone check out next time they're at Wimbledon. You should go to Wimbledon if you don't <laughs> have a plan to go to Wimbledon. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but it was definitely worth visiting, and it was fun to walk around the courts afterwards. I mean, it's an old grass court club right in the heart of Newport. Cool. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of worthy tennis destinations. I was thinking when I was at New Haven how many different tournaments I'd been to over the years, and that was only the second time I'd been to a, a 
only WTA event as opposed to a joint event. Mm. But there's, especially in Europe, there's so many iconic destinations that some, I know some, you've been to some of them, Carl. You've, did, have you been to Monte Carlo? No, that's, that's a big regret. Yeah, that's one of, the, one of the big ones. But you did go to Madrid? It was, no? it was a week showing, Jeff. Very UK focused. Barcelona was really the only clay court event. Barcelona, that's what I'm thinking of. I think you were talking about maybe doing both, but yeah, that was vetoed at some point in the process. Carefully using the passive voice there. Um, Noted. Yeah, there's lots of lots of big tennis destinations, and one of them is New York. I mean, it's it's second nature to us. I mean, I've, I I realized the other day that it is almost exactly 20 years ago since the first time I went to. Wow. The U.S. Open. Um, I I blew off one day of NYU orientation to go to. It must have been Monday or Tuesday at the beginning of the tournament, and I saw Elena Dementieva. I think you actually match. won NYU orientation because it's all about learning to not hang out at NYU and go explore the city. Yeah, pretty much. So you figured it out. I figured it out before I even started classes, and then I really stuck with it for for four years. Nose to the grindstone. Stay away from NYU. <laughs> I, I did that. It worked out well. But um, yeah, I think seeing Elena Dementieva on court was a formative experience for me at that young and impressionable age. Um, I know I'm going to the qualifying rounds, one of my favorite events in tennis. Carl, I hope you're going to be able to, to join me. I hope so too. I wanted to talk about that a little bit more, but I also think we should keep it to one hour, which is rapidly approaching. Three minutes away. Three minutes away. So Carl, you've been to qualies many times. I guess what, what, what I'm curious about is, especially in the early rounds of qualies, there's, I think there's 128 first round matches. So I think there's 64 matches a day on Tuesday and Wednesday. And sometimes they'll have matches running on 15 courts, something like that. If you show up and you've got to pick between those 15 courts, how on earth do you do that? Oh, wow. Well, and I, I know that you might at some point have called me and asked what you should see, yeah. but that's not an acceptable answer. Yeah, I should have asked Jeff this question <laughs> because Jeff's knowledge below number 100 in the rankings, ATP and WTA, exceeds mine and exceeds almost everyone. I've but that, I think that might make your answer more valuable because it, I do know an embarrassing amount about some of the players who are playing in qualies, but... Most people, including maybe even me this year, are not in that position. And you're faced with 15 courts of people who are really, 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 really good at tennis, playing very high-stakes matches who you know almost nothing about, or one knows almost nothing about. So where do you start? How do you, how do you decide what's worth watching? Well, it depends how much time I want to put into it, but two kind of... One really easy filter is it lists the country. And, you know... You can choose to go All-American just for the sake of you're probably going to... Jeff is giving me a very skeptical look. Um, but you are probably going to have some people cheering for them. And as much as I love qualities, I love them more when there's some atmosphere besides the actual match. They're more likely to have a coach there and you know parents and siblings and former college teammates. And I, I just think that adds a lot of, of atmosphere. The next thing I would look for, which isn't usually right on the draw sheet, is age. And I want to look for, for younger players, and that then you can say you saw him or her then. And lastly, I'll just quickly scan the names, and there are going to be some people I've heard of who have just fallen from the rankings, and sometimes that means they're just playing really badly, but it's often that they're coming back from injury, or at least that you could, it's a chance to see them one more time. I mean, I think... 
Sara Arani was playing some pretty high profile qualities. I, I always admired her game and she was French Open finalist. So uh, those would be my quick filters. Though, though it would take more time to sort of look up players and, and, and research them. I'm hoping that Jeff makes a guide to everyone in the top 1,000 so that we can see who he really highlights. Ah, that's, uh, I was thinking, not the top 1,000, but I was thinking about that. We talked about it off, off the podcast a little while ago. And one of the daunting things about something like that is there are just so many names. And even if you, even if you turn it into an algorithm uh, and you can just code something up, even just presenting that in a coherent way of how to, how to watch or how to rank 128 matches that's a lot of anything to rank. I mean, one one thing, one possibility is Jeff McFarland's popcorn score that he invented, which is one of the one of the cooler and more creative ideas I've seen lately. And I don't think he really envisioned it as applying to qualities. But the basic idea is, if you if you look at a couple of players, see how closely matched they are, and he's using surface specific ELO, so we're getting serious about this, and also look at how good they are because. There's more value, usually more value in a match with with good players than lesser players. Um, turn that into one number, so you can rank, say, first round matches by popcorn score and see which ones are likely to be good, entertaining matches. And I don't know how well that would translate to the qualities, but something like that. And I, I suggested to Jeff that he he add a a variant on it, which would be prospect popcorn score, where you take his popcorn score and add age into the mix because. I mean, for me anyway, if, if you've got two matches that are otherwise equal and one of them is between a couple of 19-year-olds, then I care more about the one with the 19-year-olds because, I don't know, I'll feel cooler in seven years when I can say I watched it. I don't, I don't even really know why. But certainly at qualities, like you say, that's, that's a major factor is looking at age. The one adjustment I'd make to what you said from having followed a similar algorithm for years is I disagree about the U.S. and not just because I'm... You know, a bad American. I'll say why in a second. And I slightly disagree about age. Americans, and both of them for part for this for similar reasons, and that's because there are so many wild cards um, in in the qualifying draws. I think the USTA gets to give out eight, and maybe there's reciprocals with France and Australia, but that's still six Americans who didn't qualify on the merits, and. Not everyone chooses to play, but all Americans who qualify choose to play. So if you were to look at which qualifiers have rankings outside the 250, the top 250 is almost all Americans. So if all you know about a player is that they have USA next to their name, the odds are actually against their being very good <laughs> compared to the average quality player. Um, Although some of those wild cards are quite young. Which means there might be good someday. Yeah, you could have seen Madison Keys as a fourteen-year-old. So yeah, I mean, if you really, if you know who you're choosing to see, like there can be some interesting players. I think I saw Ryan Harrison when he was a, I think he was a wild card the first time he played qualies. Maybe he was only seventeen and he played differently than he plays now. But um, yeah, he that that was worth seeing. So I mean, it, it, they're not hard and fast rules, but. Similarly with age, if you do look for the youngest players, you'll often end up with wild cards or players who just aren't quite ready, maybe just barely snuck in because they won a challenger recently or something. But but yeah, I mean, all else equal, go younger. If you want real fan engagement, go past the court with the Americans on it and go to the court with the South Americans on it because there are always, 
always South American fans. I, uh, there's so many South and Central American um, immigrants, and I guess not all immigrants, but people of that heritage who are very invested in it still in New York. So if there's a Brazilian on court or a Colombian, I've, I used to play tennis with a lot of Colombians, so I think I've seen pretty much every Alejandro Faya qualifying match ever played. And yeah, those fans are serious. You'll see a, you'll see a row of five courts, four of them are empty, but the one in the middle has people draped in Colombian flags. And yeah, it, it can be a little awkward when you have one player with a following like that and someone who's from, I don't know, somewhere that doesn't have a following. I don't know, let's say Bulgaria. And it, I saw the opposite of that in Australian Open Qualies once. Uh, Grigor Dimitrov was playing... Wow, is Dimitrov playing Qualies? Let's say he was. I'll have to check Tennis Abstract on that later. But I think I saw Dimitrov playing some American who's now retired. And there were like five Bulgarians who were just crazy loud and the American was going nuts because these five fans were annoying him so much and it was only seven fans total it was me and a friend and the five Bulgarians but were you cheering for the American (laughs) no I went to I mean it was Dimitrov I think playing qualies so so you do get if you want the fan engagement which I would concur it's one of the more entertaining parts of any lightly attended tennis event. Um, it looks like so Robert Kendrick won that match. Robert Kendrick, that is right. Ah, he did win. That's, that's one of the biggest accomplishments of his career, probably. <laughs> so yeah, just, just look for the shouting Brazilians or Colombians or Argentinians, maybe. So I'll be out there. If you somehow know what I look like, then maybe you'll see me there. Um, Carl might be there as well. You might be more likely to know what he looks like. I think he's less less guarded about pictures of himself getting online, maybe. Um, that's not a challenge. Don't want to tempt anybody. But for me, not for Carl, I'm trying to... I don't even know what I'm talking about now. <laughs> but it, I did say we were going to wrap it up, and here we are. So, Carl, it's great to finally do a podcast in person after 29 episodes. First, but not the last. But not the last. We should be doing the same thing a week from now. Um, Carl, this is also a formal warning that I'm about to go Victoria Golubich on you, and and it's, it's it's going to be pure domination on court if it's not raining still. It's not raining still. Okay, so so there we go. Um, we'll give you a full report on on the match here next week, as well as probably talk a little bit about New Haven in the U.S. Open preview. So thank you for listening, as always, Carl. Great to have you with me. And we will 